There's two ways to miss God in life. One is to deny him and to reject him outright. That you just make the decision that you don't believe in God, or if you believe God is out there, you're not interested, you're not going to follow him. You're not going to take the time to, to build your life around him. But there's a second way to miss God, which is what I want to talk about tonight. And that is to just have, have him slightly out of focus. To believe in him, but to not quite understand who he is and what he's calling you to be, who he's calling you to be, what he's calling you to believe, um, and to show up before him in the next life and to hear him say, depart from me. I never knew you. Hey friends, it's Andrew and John for Into the Harvest. Our mission is to inspire and resource God's people to live the ancient faith in modern life. We want you to be a disciple and make disciples of Jesus in every nook and cranny of the world that we live in. 2023 has been a great year of growth for this ministry, and we've got big plans for 2024. So we're here today asking for your help. Our year-end fundraiser is happening now, and you can help us finish strong and launch us into the new year. If you believe in this work and it's helped you this year, would you consider making a donation today? There's a link in the show notes to this episode and every gift matters. So thanks for being part of our community and helping grow this mission. Recently, I saw a, an unscientific survey that asked the question, what is the scariest verse in the Bible? So I thought I would throw it out to you guys and get your input just to see if it matches up with, with the responses that I was seeing there. And there was one verse or one passage in particular that came up multiple times, seemed to be what many people thought of as the, the scariest verse or passage in the Bible. So what do you guys think? Anyone want to take a stab at what you think is the, the most frightening verse in the Bible? What comes to mind? I never knew you. That was the number one verse that came up. Most people, when they thought about it, that's what came up over and over. Depart from me, I never knew you. And I think I can see why that would be the most frightening verse for many of us, because there's two ways to miss God in life. One is to deny him and to reject him outright. That you just make the decision that you don't believe in God, or if you believe God is out there, you're not interested, you're not going to follow him. You're not going to take the time to to build your life around him. But there's a a second way to miss God, which is what I want to talk about tonight. And that is to just have, have him slightly out of focus. To believe in him, but to not quite understand who he is and what he's calling you to be, who he's calling you to be, what he's calling you to believe, um, and to show up before him in the next life and to hear him say, depart from me. I never knew you. I mean, that would be a real tragedy. And that gets us to the point that I want to start with. And that is that true faith 
is built on the core truths that God has revealed about himself and humanity. So I'll just say that again. True faith is built on core truths that God has revealed about himself and humanity. True faith. God has revealed things about himself and about us. And true faith is understanding what those things are and believing them, putting our trust in them. And then discipleship flows from that. When we have true faith, when we're aware of these truths that God has revealed um, and we've put our trust in them, then we're in a position to actually live out a life of faith, which is what discipleship is. Discipleship is living a life of devotion to Jesus. But you can't even live that. You can't live a life of discipleship if you're not... If you don't have the foundation of these core truths that God has revealed about himself. And personally, I think that here in the West, here in the United States, here in San Diego, that our generation, which I include myself in, we're, we're in trouble. My uh, son-in-law texted this past week in our family discord And he said that he had seen or he had listened to a podcast where there were contestants on Jeopardy. And the question was asking them to complete the missing word. And I I guess it was like the Bible category, which if you guys ever watch Jeopardy and you're watching the Bible category, it is pretty amazing. Because these are highly intelligent people, not only intelligent, but they're they're very um, well-rounded in their knowledge. But so many people don't know the Bible. But the question was this, what is the missing word? Our Father, who art in heaven, blank be your name. And there was some awkward silence, and then the buzzer went off. No one even tried to get it. What do you guys think it is? Okay, good. I just want to make sure. Um, But these contestants, they didn't know. And I don't think that that's as unusual as we might think. And it points to what I would call just biblical illiteracy, that we as a people are becoming less and less knowledgeable about basic truths. And maybe even 15 years ago, probably someone would have rung in and gotten that answer right. Um, But very quickly, I think we're seeing our generation lose grasp of basic truths or even just basic uh, stats or knowledge, information about God. Some of this, I think, is because we as Christians are majoring on minors. So we're making a big deal over little things. They might even be biblical things, but we're not focused on these core truths that God has revealed about himself and about humanity. We're over here on the side, and the big truths that God wants us to know about himself are out of focus because we're distracted. You know, if you go on... Twitter, Christian Twitter, and you see almost anything that Christians are talking about on Twitter, it's probably a minor. It's, it's probably not these core truths about who God is and what's wrong with humanity and uh, what the good news about Jesus is. We're, we're over here on the corner focusing, majoring on minors. We're choosing the exotics over the essentials. And when we do that, we're in danger of 
losing our focus on Jesus. Last year, the Pew Research, they do a lot of surveys and, and um, charts. Every year they do something called the state of theology, and it's where they ask questions specifically of Christians and specifically of evangelical Christians. And there's lots of different topics that they ask them questions on, but it's just a way that you can follow trend lines of, of how biblical the thinking is among people who claim to be Christians, people who claim to be evangelicals. And among evangelicals, 43% agreed with this statement. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Okay, so out of 100 Christians who were answering that survey, they came to that statement. Agree or disagree? Agree or disagree? Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 43%, almost half, agreed with that statement. So these aren't just 100 Americans. <laughs> these are 100 people who claim to be followers of Jesus. There's a verse in Psalm 11, verse 3. It says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And it's a bit of a rhetorical question. If the foundations are destroyed, what can you build? Nothing. You can't build anything if the foundations are destroyed. The only thing you can do is relay the foundation. And I think that's maybe where we're finding ourselves as the church here in 2023. We have to make sure that we know the foundations, that the foundations are laid in our own life. And then for those of you who want to make disciples, who want to help other people come to know and follow Jesus, you have to make sure that you're laying those foundations in the lives of the people that you're sharing with. Because we can no longer assume that those foundations exist. And if you try to build a disciple where the foundation isn't present, then it's similar to Jesus' story about trying to build a house on the sand. It might look good for a little while, but it's not going to last. And we really want to help people become lifelong followers of Jesus. So tonight I'd like to start at the start in terms of regaining our focus. And the starting point for us who believe that, that this is the word of God is Jesus. This whole book is about a person. It's about Jesus. From Genesis through Revelation, it's preparing us for the moment when God's son Jesus comes into the world. And then the New Testament is helping us understand who he is what he taught, what it means to be one of his people, what it means to follow him. It's all about Jesus. And so I want to share four essential truths about Jesus that each of us needs to recognize and respond to. Luke 20, verse 17 and 18, Jesus, quoting an Old Testament prophet, said this, he said that the stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Speaking of himself, that he himself was rejected by the builders, the spiritual leaders of his day. God had given 
the people, Jesus, as a stone to build everything around. But the builders rejected Jesus. They didn't want to receive him as the one who had been sent from God. But Jesus said he was that stone. He was the cornerstone. He said the stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. But then verse 18 says this, that everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. So that's pretty heavy, right? You can't get Jesus wrong. It's, it's critical that you start at the start, understanding who Jesus is and making sure that you're building your life on him, that you're not tripping over him or that he's not falling on you because that doesn't end well. Now, many of us who haven't done a lot of construction, we hear that word cornerstone. Maybe we've heard that word before, but another concept that's very similar to the idea of a cornerstone is a watershed. And that's something that most of us are familiar with. And even if you're not sure, you are. You know what a watershed is. The most common watershed that most of us would be familiar with is the the apex of a roof. So houses are built with the roofs coming up to a point. That's the watershed. And it's, it's a very uh, descriptively named feature of a house because when it rains, the water lands on that roof and the watershed forces it to go one way or the other. That the water cannot just stay flat. It can't just sit on the roof. Like by design, the watershed will force the water to go one way or the other. That's Jesus. You can't be neutral about Jesus. Jesus will force you to have a take on who he is and whether or not you believe that he is who he said he is, that, that he is who the scriptures claim him to be. There's no way to be neutral. That's why Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me. You can't be neutral when it comes to Jesus. So these are four essential truths about Jesus that we need to recognize and respond to. And I, I just want to say before we dive in, that these are, this is not an exhaustive list. These aren't the only four truths about Jesus, but they are essential truths about Jesus. They are four things that we need to know and we need to embrace. We need to receive about him. So the first is this. And by the way, we're going to be mostly in the gospel of John. So if you want to go ahead and turn to John's gospel, you can do that. We're going to start in chapter one here, but there'll be a few other passages that we go to. In fact, if I could have somebody volunteer to read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 18. Could someone read that for the group in a few moments when we get to that part? Yeah, Aaron. Okay, but let's start with John chapter 1 and the first essential truth about Jesus, and that is he is the eternal Son of God. In John 1, verse 1, we read this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Okay, it's a bit cryptic. If you haven't read John's gospel before, what does it mean? The Word was in the beginning with God. He was God. Verse 14 tells us who this Word is. Just a few verses down the page. And the word became flesh 
and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So there's two things we learn about Jesus, because he is the one who became flesh and dwelt among us. The first is that his life, his earthly life, did not begin. Let me rephrase. His life did not begin with his earthly birth. Okay, that's unique about Jesus. When he was born in Bethlehem, that was not the beginning of his life. In fact, if you go all the way back before Bethlehem existed, before the world existed, Jesus was there. So he's unique. He's unique among all men because he is the eternal son of God. Now, verse 14 is interesting, and this caused a lot of conversations in the early church. The only begotten, the only begotten son of God. And the early church wrestled with what does it mean that Jesus was begotten? And one of the formulations that they came up with is known as the Nicene Creed. And it's a statement of faith. I believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only begotten. Begotten, not created. That was an important distinction. Because some people believe that Jesus did have a beginning, that he was the first creation of God. But that's not what the scriptures teach. C.S. Lewis, who was a well-known Christian in the 20th century, wrote a book called Mere Christianity. And he was talking about this idea of Jesus being begotten. And here's what he said. He said, when you beget, you beget something of the same kind as yourself. So a man and a woman can beget a child. And that child is of the same essence and has the same value as his or her parents. He's of the same stuff. By contrast, when you create something, even if it looks very similar, it is of essence, it's different. So a very talented sculptor can, can sculpt a statue of a man. And maybe even if you see it from a distance, you might initially be mistaken to think that this is a real person. But when you get up to that statue, when you get up to that image, you discover that it looks like a man, but it's made of different stuff. Does that make sense? So Jesus is not created. He's begotten. He's of the same essence as God because he, he is God. And this is unique. Do any of you guys have an idea of how many people have lived on the earth in the totality of human history? Anyone want to take a guess? Like right now, there's about 8 billion. But how many people have lived on the earth over the course of all mankind? I Googled it before tonight, so I cheated. Anyone want to guess, though? 12 billion? I was thinking like those numbers, but the number that I found over and over was a little over 100 billion. I don't know exactly how they came up with that, so that's my disclaimer. But let's just say it's true, 100 billion people over the course of all human history. Only one of those humans was of the same essence 
as God. Only one of those hundred billion people has a life that did not begin with their physical birth. And that's Jesus. So to recognize and respond to this first truth about Jesus is to, is to recognize that Jesus is unique in his essence. Yes, he's one of us. He is human. But he's different. He, he's not made of the same stuff, the same essence as we are, because he is God in the flesh. And then the way to respond to that is by embracing his unique status and honoring him as God. He's not just a good man. He's not just a good leader, a good teacher, a good moral example for us to follow. He is God himself in the flesh. And when you recognize that and you respond to it the right way, you will honor him as God. You will worship him as God. The second essential truth about Jesus that we need to recognize and respond to is found a little bit later here in John chapter 1. So if you're there, let's read verse 29. This is John the Baptist speaking. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The second truth about Jesus is that he is the Lamb of God. When the angel appeared to Joseph, before Jesus was born, Joseph's fiance, Mary, had been found with child. It was discovered that she's pregnant. And I suspect that um, maybe Joseph and Mary had a conversation <laughs> about how, how could this be? How are you pregnant? Now, if you piece together Matthew's gospel and John's gospel, I'm sorry, Luke's gospel, you find out that Mary had had an extended visit with her relative Elizabeth in the Judean foothills, right? All right, so put yourself in Joseph's sandals. Your fiance's been gone for several months. She comes back, she's pregnant. Um, now, I suspect that they talked and Mary shared with him, you're never gonna believe this, but this angel showed up and he told me that I was going to be, become pregnant in a miraculous way because the child growing within me is from God, is the son of God. So Joseph thought about this and apparently he just couldn't, he just couldn't buy it. So he decided that he still loved this woman. He didn't want to dishonor her, but he was not going to go through with the marriage. And as soon as he decided that he had a dream and in that dream, he was told, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because the child growing within her is indeed from God. And then he goes on to say, when this child is born, you are to name him Jesus. All right. Now, what does the name Jesus mean? Anyone know? In the dream, he actually gives the interpretation. He says, you will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And so the name Jesus means Yahweh saves or the Lord saves. And this was Jesus's, this is part of who Jesus is. He's, 
He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what John the Baptist said. The first thing we need to know about this, this person is that he's the Lamb of God. He's been sent to take away the sin of the world. The first thing the angel tells Joseph is, name him Jesus, because he's going to save his people from their sins. So to, to recognize and respond to this truth about Jesus is to recognize that Jesus is unique as a sacrifice for our sin. There's no other lamb of God that's been sent by God to deal with my sin. That's Jesus. He's the only one who has died on a cross for my sins. Acts 4.12 says that there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This guy's it. Jesus is it. He is the one sent by God to be the lamb who would take away sin. And so I respond by that. If I recognize that that's true about Jesus, I respond by embracing his unique role in my salvation and trusting in his sacrifice. I'm not trying to fix my sin through any other sacrifice or through my own efforts. There's, there's this one person that I can turn to. But the good news is, that's who Jesus is. He, he can deal and has dealt with my sin. All right, so Jesus is the eternal son of God. He is the lamb of God. The third truth is that he is the one and the way. This really flows out of that second truth about Jesus, that he's the lamb of God. The early followers of Jesus were not called Christians. When you read the scriptures, you find out that they were called followers of the way, which I think sounds pretty cool, actually. But why is that? I think maybe it was because of John 14, where Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And so in the coming years, the people who were following Jesus, they they began to be known as followers of the way. All right. What does this mean that Jesus is the one and the way? All right, Aaron, if you could read for us Ephesians 2, 13 through 18. that's what I want us to focus on here. Verse 18, the whole passage leads up to this. But the point here is that Jesus is the one who gives us access to God. He's the one who not only did he pay for our sins because those, those were what was keeping us from God. But more than that, Jesus also provides us a relationship with God. He gives us access to God himself. He restores that to us. And he's the only one who can do that. That's a a unique truth about Jesus. One way I've thought about this in the past is 
Everybody's familiar with the idea of an after party. Um, so like in Hollywood, maybe like there's a, uh, there's like a, a movie premiere and only the most important, coolest people can go to this premiere. And then afterwards, there's an even cooler party uh, that you can't get into because you're just a regular person. Only the most important people can get into this party. Um, but let's say that you were really good friends with one of the stars of the movie. And, and that star said to the people that were preventing the average person from getting in, what if that person said, hey, this is my sister, you know, let her in. Well, you know, if you're the bouncer, you're, you're below the, the star, right? So you're going to let that person in. Okay, well, that's Jesus, and that's the afterlife. So the coming age is the ultimate after party. It's the ultimate important event that is coming in the future. The bad news for us is that none of us are cool enough to get into this event. Even if Brian is cooler than me, neither one of us is cool enough to get into God's after party that's coming in the next age. But Jesus is willing to vouch for us. He's willing to get us in, to give us that access to God. And so Jesus being the one in the way to recognize that is to know that Jesus is the only one who can do that. He, he is unique in giving us access to God. And the way we respond to that is by embracing his unique role in restoring our relationship with God. I'm not trying to become good enough on my own. I'm not trusting someone else to get me in. Everything's on Jesus. All right. The fourth and final essential truth about Jesus is that he is Lord of all. The last thing we see Jesus saying to his disciples in Matthew 28 is all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples. Romans 14, 7 through 9 says this, for those of us who belong to Christ, not one of us lives for himself. Not one of us dies to himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. Now, if that was the only verse that you had, why did Jesus die? To this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord. So, yes, he died for our sins. Yes, he died so that we could spend eternity with him. But you don't get Jesus without getting Lord. I once heard someone say that where Jesus goes, he goes as Lord. Where he lives, he rules. So you don't get Jesus without Lord. Uh, Lord is who he is. He's Lord of all. All authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. When I recognize that, it means that I want to learn his words and his ways. Because I want to follow his words and his ways. Because he is Lord of all. Okay, so four things we need to know about Jesus. First, he is the eternal son of God. 
No one else is made of the same stuff as Jesus. No other human. Secondly, he is the lamb of God, the only one who paid the penalty for sin and takes away sin. Third, he is the one and the way. He's the only one that can give us access to God. And finally, he's Lord of all. He's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. If you recognize those things, then you should respond to them and build your life on Jesus. And that's what it means to have true faith. And that's what it means to live a life of discipleship, of devotion to Jesus. So let me pray for us. And then I know we have some announcements. So Nate, you can come back up and share with us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're alive today, that we're not just reading about you as a historical figure, but we're learning who you really are today. And I pray for each of us that we would understand these truths about you and embrace them in our own lives. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. 